The Energy Gang is brought to you by Bloom Energy. Bloom Energy is transforming the way businesses and communities take charge of their energy supply through resilient, predictable and zero-carbon solutions. Bloom's on-site energy platform provides unparalleled control for those looking to secure clean, reliable 24-7 power that scales to meet critical business needs. Today's energy challenges are unprecedented and widespread. Bloom's platform eliminates outage and price risk while accelerating us all toward a zero-carbon future. Visit bloomenergy.com slash theenergygang and take charge today. The Energy Gang is brought to you by Hitachi Energy. How is the grid evolving and changing? What does it mean for your business, your energy needs, your customers? Whatever your goals, look to Hitachi Energy for the right technologies to help unlock new revenue streams, maximise renewable integration and lower carbon emissions. Visit hitachienergy.com slash offering slash solutions slash grid edge solutions. Hello, this is The Energy Gang, weekly discussions about the fast-changing world of energy. I'm Ed Crooks. Welcome to the show. Now, as long-time listeners to The Energy Gang will know, we've had some changes here at the podcast. Stephen Lacey and Catherine Hamilton, who founded the podcast with Jigga Shah many years ago, have moved on to do other great things, and I want to thank them for all the great shows they've produced down the years. We're going to try to be true to their legacy in carrying on the conversation about the future of energy. So we have a new gang. It'll be me, Melissa Lott from Columbia University's Centre on Global Energy Policy, and some of the other best-informed people in energy in the US and beyond. Hello, Melissa. Hey, good to see you. And also very pleased to be joined by Emily Chasen, who's at Generate Capital, the green infrastructure investment firm. Hello, Emily. Thanks very much for joining us today. Thanks so much. I'm excited to be here today with you and Melissa, Ed. Yeah, well, thanks very much for joining us. Great to have you here. Although we have different people on the podcast, we are going to be trying to bring you the same news and insight about the future of energy. We'll be discussing all the hot topics, we'll be bringing ideas and inspiration from the worlds of business, finance, technology and politics as they shape the transition away from fossil fuels and towards carbon-free energy. For a podcast today, of course, there can only be one big subject we're all thinking about, and that's the COP26 climate talks now underway in Glasgow been billed as the last best hope for the planet to avoid catastrophic climate change. I don't really like that language. I think a lot of people think it's overstated. But even so, this is a very, very important event. And we're going to be getting into some of the reasons why later in the podcast. Before we get onto that subject, though, I thought it'd be great, Emily and Melissa, if you could talk a little bit about yourselves, introduce yourselves in more detail, just explain to the listeners where you're coming from. Melissa, you'll probably be known to a lot of listeners to this podcast from the other podcast, uh, The Big Switch, which is a show about the power grid and how it's changing. And you're also, as I was saying, Director of Research at the Centre on Global Energy Policy at Columbia University. Can you talk a little bit about your career? How did you get here? What brought you to Columbia? And what are your interests in terms of energy and climate? Yeah, thanks, Ed. I'm really looking forward to this discussion today, I'll say. In the midst of everything that's going on with COP, I know at the Center on Global Energy Policy, along with Columbia's Climate School, we have a significant presence over there in Glasgow, and all eyes are, are on it right now. There's a lot going on. But um, to your question, I've been working in energy for, I guess, just south of 20 years, starting uh, with work actually on renewables projects in New Zealand around what feel strange to say, the turn of the century, the early 2000s. Um, broadly, I'm a PhD engineer. I love putting numbers to theories. So when you think that something's going to go a certain way, let's run the numbers, see what actually happens and see what that tells us about the future. And in my own research, I look a lot at public health impacts of this energy transition and how do we maximize the public health benefits. I came to Columbia just over two years ago. 
I actually had worked with Jason Bordoff, who started the center just over eight years ago. I'd worked with him in the White House during the Obama administration at the Council on Environmental Quality. And so and at the time, we've been looking at key aspects of federal transmission authorities, uh, looking at how we could build out the grid uh, to support, you know, a less air pollution, decarbonized future for the system. We looked at things like what would eventually become the Clean Power Plan um, and then the process for quantifying the impacts of greening of the government, which was uh, set forth in an executive order at that time. Fast forward, uh, I'm in Japan and and Jason said, hey, you know, we're doing some great work over here at Columbia and the timing just worked. And I came to New York and so moved back to the U.S. and became our director of research. Let's see, back in January, the end of January, start of February. So it's been a, a busy couple of years at Columbia. Yeah, that's absolutely fascinating. And, and it's great to hear about the work you've been doing at the Columbia Center, which, as you say, I think really has made an impact in the world. I think it's uh, somewhere that is hugely well-respected I certainly read your stuff all the time. I I really think it's fantastic. And it's great that I know how incredibly busy you are just in the the conversations we've had about your schedule. So I think it's really fantastic that you're able to take the time out to to join the gang and be part of what we're doing here. So that's something we're incredibly grateful for. So Emily, turning to you. So you work for Generate Capital, which is a firm that's going to be familiar to a lot of listeners to this podcast because it was co-founded by Jigga Shah, who was also the co-founder of the Energy Gang back all those years ago. Your uh, journey has been interesting. You were a journalist. You were one of the pioneers of sustainability journalism, writing about uh, sustainable investment when you worked for Bloomberg and I think uh, Wall Street Journal and Reuters before that. Can you tell us a little bit about your sort of career journey, how you got to generate what you're doing there, and also a little bit about Generate Capital and what the mission of that firm is? Great. Thanks. Well, I'm so happy to be here today with you and Melissa. I joined Generate Capital about a year ago as head of communications. And what I think about my job every day is just sort of trying to make infrastructure cool and um, revealing the foundations of our society and infrastructure and everything that underpins what we do and thinking about how we can make different choices that, that get us toward the energy transition. I was a longtime journalist. Um, this is really my first job outside of journalism. So I did 15 years um, at Reuters, The Wall Street Journal, and Bloomberg most recently. Previously, I was sustainable finance editor at Bloomberg, where I created their sustainable finance newsletter, which sort of became the foundation of Bloomberg Green and wrote about everything ESG and responsible investing and green finance and green bonds and every little change that was happening in finance. And I got into this in about probably 2012. I was at The Wall Street Journal then and where I helped launch CFO Journal. And my job was to interview CFOs all over the world for five years. And that was really cool. I just met such great people and learned all these different businesses and approaches to building things. That's me. And um, I'm so excited to be talking with you both today. Well, thanks very much. Thanks a lot for joining us. In terms of uh, what Generate actually does then, so where do you plan that? You talked about making infrastructure cool. How do you do that? Infrastructure actually is the coolest. Um, A few weeks ago at this job, I was actually, you know, on a solar field uh, up close to some real infrastructure. Um, So generates a long-term investor in sustainable infrastructure and investment in operating platform. So it's structured as a company, not a fund. And that's so that you can take a really long-term view on infrastructure and then go on to operate it across its entire lifetime. Um, Because infrastructure is something that lives in the world. It's not just an investment. And so Generate works to scale affordable, reliable, sustainable infrastructure in the green power, mobility, smart cities, waste and water space. We're basically just trying to rebuild the world together. And it's a lot of fun to be in the energy industry, have worked with Jigger, really familiar with the energy gang from that. And um, 
be here today. Fantastic. Great you can join us. So I should also, I just realize, uh, say a little bit about myself probably. I work for Wood McKenzie, which is an energy research and consulting firm, and we provide analysis and data across the whole spectrum of everything that goes on in the world of energy. I'm also a recovering journalist. So I've done my present job at Wood for about a couple of years. And before that, I was a long-time writer on energy at the Financial Times. Didn't actually come with an energy background at all, came with an economics background, but it's one of these things. And I guess you, Melissa and Emily, you'd probably both agree with me about this, which is once I started learning about energy and discovering it, whatever that was, 15, 20 years ago, back at the FT, when I started covering it as a journalist, I became completely hooked. And then when you start to see the significance of energy to all our lives in a kind of obvious way about how it underpins everything that goes on in the modern world, but also how it has the potential to wreck the modern world, essentially, through climate change. That's an incredibly potent subject, I think. As I always say to people when I meet them and talk about what I do, I don't think there's anything else more important than anyone does really in the world. I guess a lot of people think that about their jobs, but I certainly think We, all of us, have got a a good case uh, to make for that when we're thinking about energy, talking about it, working in the industry. I think, as I say, hard to think of anything that is more fundamental to our way of life and to the future of that way of life as well. So, The big story of the week, it is, of course, COP26. COP, standing for the Conference of the Parties to the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change. And that's the group, including all the countries of the world, which is getting together to address the threat of climate change. My embarrassing COP story is the first one I went to was COP15, which was in Copenhagen back in uh, 2009. And when I first heard about it, I thought that COP was short for Copenhagen. So you'd have had Par 21 in Paris, Glad 26, I guess this one would be. So... You live and learn. Anyway, I know better now, I think. And as we've been looking at the COP process uh, down those years since Copenhagen, which really ended in a bit of a fiasco, it was very, very hard for countries to reach agreement, you may remember. It was one that President Barack Obama went to with very, very high hopes and really no kind of deal was secured. But the world then, by 2015, did manage to make a great leap forward with the Paris Agreement. Almost 200 countries were signed on to that, moving in very much the same direction in terms of setting these goals for limiting global warming to 2 degrees C, to well below 2 degrees C, in fact, was the way they put it, and also pursuing efforts to try and limit global warming to 1.5 degrees. There's been a lot more global alignment and harmony on the issue of climate change since then, and COP26 is then meant to be a further significant step forward. Already this week, we've had a lot of uh, big news coming out of Glasgow. We had a new international agreement on forestry that looks pretty significant. More than 100 countries getting together to agree to preserve forests. And we've also had some big new commitments on reaching net zero emissions. Over the past year or so, we've seen a number of economies, the EU, Canada, Japan, South Korea, committing to net zero emissions by 2050. We've had China committing to net zero by 2060. And now just this week, we've also had India committing to net zero emissions by 2070. We've had Vietnam making a pledge for 2050 and so on. So there seems to be now an enormous amount of momentum behind these net zero pledges. And in fact, if you add it all up, roughly 
85% of all the world's emissions are now produced by countries that have signed up to some kind of net zero pledge by roughly the middle of the century, sometime between 2050 and 2070. So now, Melissa, you're not in Glasgow, you're in Texas, but I know a lot of your Columbia colleagues are over there right now, reflecting, I think, just how important it is and the fact that there's a lot of very significant discussions going on there and you're very much part of those discussions. Can you tell us a bit about why COP26 is important? What is the real meaning of this conference and why should people care about it? So COP26 matters on many levels, and I could focus in on the importance of bringing together global leaders and you know, really having focused talks about what we're going to do when it comes to climate change in terms of mitigation and adaptation. I mean, certainly there's a real important role for global leadership when it comes to actually realizing the solutions that we have to climate change. But in terms of COP26 in particular, I actually want to look back at COP21 just really quickly. So 2015, the Paris Agreement, there were really four key points that the signatories on that agreed to. One is about pursuing these efforts to keep global average temperature rise well below 2 degrees C, the goal of 1.5, which is something that we focus on quite a bit. The second one is limiting greenhouse gas emissions to net zero by somewhere between 2050 and 2100. And there's really a focus if we want to do one five degrees about getting that mid-century target in place. And then each country was supposed to set its own emission reduction targets. And then there's this financing piece, which I know, Emily, you'll probably talk about here in a bit, talking about this $100 billion per year by 2020 number. Number three is the really important one this time around. So each country was supposed to set its own emission reduction targets, and they're supposed to be updated every five years. These are the nationally determined contributions that we discuss so often. So here we are. I mean, it's not 2020. COVID, you know, put a hitch in things in terms of timing on that. But we are looking at countries to step up and say, what is your contribution to this overall target going to be? So this is the fifth COP after Paris, and it's a big deal to see how far countries are willing to go, at least in their voluntary contributions. So when you look at um, all these pledges that we've had, as I said, an amazing proportion of the world's emissions now covered by some kind of net zero pledge. Does that mean COP26 is already a success? Can we say that the meeting's already achieved the goal it was uh, crucially set out it's to It's funny, achieve. I've been talking about this with a lot of our different colleagues. Um, I remember particularly a conversation with Jennifer Winter at University of Calgary the other day. She was joining us for an event, and we were saying, is Glasgow already a success? And this was before COP had kicked off. And you could argue that, yes, it is, because it has required countries to step up, focus on the task at hand, and publicly say if they're willing to increase their ambition or not. And what's very clear is at this point, we are not on track for the goal set forth in the Paris Agreement. We are in a better position than we were before an agreement was put into place, but we're certainly not on track. And there have been countries that have made you know some huge strides. I'm thinking about the European Union upping its commitment to 55% reduction, I believe it is, by 2030, in addition to setting that clear net zero goal. And I think that's been a big change since Paris. It's much, much less of a discussion about 80% reductions or 70% reductions or decreasing emissions intensity and much more of a focus on net zero. But we still have a lot of wild cards out there. Anything I talk about in terms of pledges might be wrong by the time people are listening to this because so many things are moving in COP. Just last night, uh, we had India step up and actually bring their target out. But I would say overall, in terms of success or not, I think it is a success to bring together leaders and have them focus and make statements about what they're going to do about this. But at the end of the day, the rubber needs to hit the road and we actually need to reduce emissions if we really want to call it what I would define as a true success. Right, because that, I guess, is the the crucial thing, which is there's a big gap between setting goals like this, aiming for net zero, and actually getting there and actually putting the policies in place that are going to be needed to drive emissions down to net zero. 
Is there any progress on that that you're seeing? I mean, is is it all this long-term, ambitious, great-sounding stuff that is not really changing much in the here and now? I, mean, I think we are seeing shifts, and some of those shifts are due to the cost declines within wind and solar. Um, they're also seen with the cost declines around battery storage. We're seeing progress is an interesting conversation we could have another day talking about you know the relative climate impacts of actually ensuring that we meet our sustainable development goals and have energy access for all it's actually good overall for the climate there's some great IEA analysis on this but you know overall i'm going to snag a a quote from Jason Bordoff, who's our, our co-founding dean of the Cumbia Climate School and also our director at, at the Center on Global Energy Policy. And essentially, he highlighted how during this pandemic, we've seen emissions fall by 6%, and we basically shut half the economy down to do it. And if we actually want to get on track between now and 2030, get on track to the goals that we set with Paris, we need emissions to fall 8% every single year between now and then. And these are just the numbers, uh, like them or not. What I will say is that I can remember when we were doing emissions, you know, projections into the future when I was at the IEA and the Department of Energy, and they were these ever-increasing lines. Now we're projecting things going kind of flat with a slight negative. That is progress, but it's not the progress that we need to actually reach our goals of two degrees or well below that. Thanks. So Emily, what's your take on this? When you look at these meetings like COP26 and you hear all these very impressive sounding pledges being made. As Melissa was just saying, the world apparently moving from a path of ever escalating emissions, at least towards one where emissions are going to flatten out. And then if governments deliver on their stated goals, emissions are going to fall very significantly. What difference does that make when you're kind of thinking about capital allocation, investment decisions, the things that people are actually doing in terms of changing the energy system right here, right now, how important are those goals, do you think? Yeah, well, it's really, I mean, fascinating week for COP to pick up again after sort of a two-year break with the pandemic and just to see these like 25,000 people descend upon Glasgow just to even start up the conversation again. So that is kind of a win. I kind of agree with Melissa that we're starting off from like a place where we are at least trying to accelerate the ambition a little bit more. It's interesting when you think about COP over the past few decades of it, right? Like we've been having this conference for maybe three decades and all of the human emissions that we've emitted that the worst years are all the years since we've been having COP. So success is not really a guarantee of what they do there. Even if we meet all our pledges right now, we're on a 2.7 degree world. So what, what does that mean? It's amazing to see people actually talking about it more in numbers, much more like specific targets and knowing that we can impact those targets. The past year of the pandemic, we saw that we changed everything and we were able to reduce emissions. So we know that humans can change. Um, we don't necessarily want a pandemic every year for the next decade to reach our targets, right? We have to make much more significant changes. This is a situation where every single degree counts. And finance actually is going to be just a huge part of that. So that is some of the really cool conversations happening at COP right now where there could be some major impacts over the longer term. There's three things that we are looking at. Number one is this $100 billion for financing solutions and the pledges different countries are making, the um, developing countries and developed countries making different levels of contribution. That's really a big part of the talks. Getting that money flowing is a big deal because a lot of this, we have proven technologies and solutions. That's what we do at Generate. You know, We know that there are proven technologies and solutions. Solar we've been using for decades. We use it in space. We can use it here on Earth too to make everything easier. 
No, so I, I'm curious what you think, Emily. Like with the hundred billion, I've been reading. So there was this article in the Washington Post by William Booth and Amanda Coletta, and they talk about essentially what has kept us from reaching this hundred billion, and really why haven't we deployed enough private finance? And I find this really interesting and really important to think about the role of private finance because often we focus on public money and how do we deploy public money into these things. But in this case, I mean. Why haven't we been able to mobilize the money and what's really keeping us from it? Do you think that that's – I'm just curious if you think that that's about right, what, they, what they're talking about. Yes and no. So we definitely haven't deployed all that money. The money has committed itself, actually. In the past year, there's a ton more money from private finance, maybe $15 trillion at least we've seen saying they're going to commit to funding this. Whether they have the projects to invest in today – something we have not quite achieved yet. You know, the way we think about financing the energy transition has to be different than the way that we thought about financing the big infrastructure projects of the past. You know, solar fields are little tiny projects. Wind turbines are sometimes big projects, but sometimes they're like little pieces of equipment spread out. You know, everything that we're doing in battery storage, it's a different kind of distributed infrastructure and banks like to finance really big projects one time, you know, so there is a lot of pressure on financial institutions at this COP to say that they are going to learn to finance this stuff and they have to actually change what they were doing to finance the energy transition. So I think the more pressure you get and the more support you get from governments in sort of creating those processes, the more likely we're going to be able to see more projects that have a real impact in emissions in our world. Like, for example, like energy efficiency, we always see people wanting to do, we see targets from governments wanting to do it, to go out and like install that stuff that reduces energy today could have a big a big impact. Right here, we're, we're in the situation where every degree counts, right? So energy efficiency should be one of our best paybacks on investment because you can reduce emissions immediately. You can sort of build it in and bake in a less emitting world. So the 100 billion is really important. If you look at the IPCC report, you'll also see a lot of the conversation in COP this week around methane reduction and how difficult methane emissions are for reaching our climate goals and you know everything we're doing in reforming the electricity system and making it more efficient and creating systems that work together can be sort of undone by huge fugitive methane emissions escaping into the atmosphere. So really controlling that, putting more regulation around methane, incentivizing methane capture, renewable natural gas, reducing methane emissions from landfill, those are all areas where we can really have an impact rather quickly on just setting up more runway for ourselves. The third thing we're really interested in is seeing if COP can make progress on these carbon markets. Carbon markets are a huge systemic way to approach it. Our prices on carbon vary so widely right now from $123 a ton to $0.06 cents a ton. We have to start thinking about the system we are creating and the incentives that creates to reduce carbon and how that could be you know, more than a one-off approach, more than just a few billion for climate finance here or there, right? That could be something that we bake in a better process for ourselves in terms of saying what really matters and getting to those numbers. It's like, it literally goes to the 2.7 degree world we're seeing right now and like taking carbon out against it. So if countries can make progress on that and clarity on that, that would definitely help things when you're looking at deploying investment into renewables right now, you're not necessarily expecting carbon markets to be much bigger than they are today. But if they were, it would certainly help. So yeah, that's very interesting. Thank you. So that's basically three very clear things 
that we can look at to judge was COP26 a success or a failure, as you say, that $100 billion a year for developing countries and their climate mitigation and adaptation, both cutting their emissions and helping them to adjust to the impacts of climate change, which is going to happen anyway, inevitably we know, just because of what's baked in already into the global climate. Number two being this question of methane and whether there's any specific firm agreement on methane reduction, which clearly we've had a lot of countries talking about that. There's this global methane pledge, which was announced a few weeks back, and it's going to be interesting to see what that actually amounts to in terms of real commitments. And the third one being that point about international carbon markets and, and trying to get an international carbon market working. Was I mean, Melissa, your thoughts on that? I mean, do you expect those three things to show real progress over the next couple of weeks? Is that something where you think we will be able to say COP26 has been a success or is it really uh, hanging in the balance? I mean, we all have our own definitions of, of success when it comes to COP26. What I will say is that I find all these points interesting and especially the last two really exciting. I mean, when it comes to methane, hats off to you know, Mark Brownstein over at EDF and to my colleagues, Bob Kleinberg and others for really highlighting what we can do about that. Because at the end of the day, cumulative emissions matter. We all know this. When it comes to climate change, it's the end point is important and zero is important, but the path we take to will hugely affect what our future looks like. So getting these near-term emissions, especially when they're actually cost-effective solutions today, like this is the lowest of the low-hanging fruit. I mean, and so seeing additional attention to pay to it is really exciting. What I will say about this carbon markets and border adjustments and trade and that whole discussion is, if you aren't already following it, this EU-US steel deal is fascinating to look at and really exciting to see because it does signal perhaps things to come. And for those who don't already follow Chris Bataille, he's a IPCC lead author for uh, industrial decarbonization and is really an expert on what we can do to decarbonize the heaviest of industries. He's got a great thread on Twitter actually talking about why steel leading in this is particularly interesting. And he highlights all the different things about how highly traded it is, how um, it's actually really capex intense and it's a low profit margin type of deal. But we need it in all the infrastructure we're building out to have the low carbon economy that we're talking about in the future and to support and you know development across the world in countries that don't already have the level of development and wealth that you know we are lucky enough to enjoy. So it's a fascinating one to follow. I know I'm gonna be following it really closely and hats off to Jane Flegel and you know others in the White House and that whole team on on moving it forward because it's a strong signal, or at least that's how I view it. I had a couple things I wanted to add to that because those are some really good points, Melissa. Um decarbonizing heavy industry is going to be a huge deal with that and a big opportunity for the climate finance we're looking at. When you look at the developing countries, right, they have a chance to potentially leapfrog development. You know, a lot of people have hesitated over the years and said that, you know, countries need fossil fuels to help them develop. But now we're in a situation where the technology costs have come down so much that, like, solar is cheaper than coal in most places. So what right do we have to keep thinking about fossil fuels as the solution when we have cheaper options available, right? If it's more economical and it's going to help us reach these global targets better, we need to be incentivizing. If you could just sort of start it off right, you don't have to um, build countries the same way we built them in the same energy systems in the past. And I will just highlight one tension with this that that comes into the solar versus coal and all of these kind of conversations. There's a couple of different you know things that I would push on, which is just the idea of developing 100% solar plus batteries. Like we don't see the numbers playing out in terms of that providing us with 24/7, 365 reliable energy until we you know 
crack the hydrogen equation on how we make that really cheap or we figure out a, a whole host of other things, it's a really tough one. And so when we go forward into the future, really understanding the energy for development part of this equation, and I think this tension was actually highlighted in a couple of different comments, one that hadn't do, didn't have to do with energy for development so much, but what President Biden was saying about hey, on one hand, we want to go to Glasgow and ha and encourage everyone to do submissions, and I'm paraphrasing here, but at the same time, hey, could oil and gas companies actually produce more oil? And there was a lot of criticism for it. And it's saying, look, this is highlighting that the energy transition is messy and complex, and first and foremost, it's a transition. And so what we aren't going to say is everyone needs to stop developing, and even in rich countries, you need to accept blackouts and accept you know problems going forward. We're saying this is actually a transition to get to net zero. How do we do it quickly? How do we do it right to ensure that we can support our economic development at the same time? That's really complex. That's really tricky. And it's a set of equations where it's not binary. We don't go from zero to one. So it's just a, I think these points are really important for us to grapple with. We definitely don't have enough time and however many shows to grapple with all of them, but you're seeing those tensions play out on the stage in Glasgow right now. Yeah, that's exactly right, Melissa. The key is, this is my friend Jigger Shah used to say all the time that it's, simple, not easy, right? We, we know what we have to do, but the process of transition has a lot of trade-offs and a lot of technologies and systems that have to work together and prepare each other. You know, fixing the electric grid to handle additional load, creating those pathways for like green hydrogen that you just said that, you know, there are companies working on, there is potential deployment there, there is a possibility, but we're still trying to crack the code and it is going to be a little bit messy until we get there. And just thinking about other options for baseload, power that's out there, you know, like one of the ones we've really invested a lot in at Generate is the renewable natural gas space and anaerobic digestion and just taking waste product, food waste, diverting it from landfill and capturing the methane from it and creating energy with that. That's a source of baseload power. We create so much food waste in the world. All of this in general is about trying to figure out how to waste less, waste less for energy, waste less food, waste less trash, but even like our trash is a resource, you know, we can take that stuff that we're already putting out there and it's going to create methane and harness it for energy. So um, there's looking for those opportunities and just finding ways to build systems where all of those different energy structures work together to build the next level energy system we need as a planet is, is something that will come out of COP, just getting people together, making those connections and trying to see ways they can put all these systems together to build our future. Yeah, there certainly is an enormous amount to talk about. And hopefully, we're going to be part of that conversation and bringing people at least a, a little bit of that, a little slice of that in the energy gang over the months and years to come. Specifically, we'll be back in a couple of weeks when we're going to be looking back at COP26, reviewing exactly what did go on, looking at the successes and the failures then. The Energy Gang is brought to you by Bloom Energy. Bloom Energy is accelerating the hydrogen economy by partnering with industry leaders to produce clean, green hydrogen. Bloom's electrolyzer uses electricity and heat from a variety of clean energy sources, such as concentrated solar power, solar panels and nuclear power, to generate green hydrogen at the scale needed to tackle today's urgent climate crisis. Bloom's pioneering solid oxide fuel cell platform leverages technology originally developed for Mars and it's uniquely designed to decarbonize our world's hardest to abate sectors. Bloom's platform has the flexibility to be deployed as a distributed generator of electricity or as an electrolyzer to produce green hydrogen. Learn more at bloomenergy.com slash the energy gang. The energy gang is brought to you by Hitachi Energy. 
The grid is evolving and changing every day, but the fundamentals haven't. Safe, reliable power is needed everywhere. No matter where you are, battery energy storage, paired with advanced controls and software, can improve resilience and efficiency. With Gridditch solutions from Hitachi Energy, you can integrate solar or wind to reach your sustainability goals while managing energy costs. It's all achievable with our innovative Gridditch solutions. Learn more at hitachienergy.com offering solutions grid edge solutions. One other thing I want to talk about on this show is the energy crisis in Europe and Asia. That's obviously been dominating the headlines and not really providing a great backdrop, I guess, to COP26 in the run-up. These sky-high prices for gas and for coal and for power, shortages in some places, caused by a whole variety of factors around the world, a lot of supply disruption, particularly in the coal market, demand really rebounding strongly as... um, the world economy picks up after the pandemic. We've talked quite a bit in recent shows about those problems, what the roots of them are and so on. I'm really interested in just having a a quick conversation with you now about solutions, about what it means in terms of the energy transition and whether perhaps some of these problems and this crisis that we're seeing at the moment can actually actually accelerate the energy transition. You've heard um, Ursula von der Leyen, President of the European Commission, talking about how the crisis shows that Europe needs to press on with its EU Green Deal, invest more in renewable energy, invest more in nuclear power, and so on. And I thought it's really interesting when you look at uh, India as well. So India's had, of course, structural problems with energy access for a very long time. It's having very specific and acute problems, particularly with coal and coal-fired generation right now. But when you hear the response to that from the Indian government, it's partly about trying to improve coal supplies, build up a strategic coal reserve and so on. But they're also talking about very definitely pressing on with a big increase in renewable energy. And when the Indian government talks about its uh, net zero target that they've been announcing this week, and there's been uh, this target set for 2070 for net zero, and people have been saying, well, is that a bit disappointing? Shouldn't they be aiming for net zero sooner than that? On the other hand, the short-term goals they've set for renewable energy look really strong and really ambitious. So, as I say, I think it's really interesting to see how the crisis is also creating opportunities. And I don't know what you uh, think about that, Melissa. I mean, do you think that's right? Is this helping to accelerate the energy transition in some ways? Or is there also this kind of backlash you're seeing where people are saying, well, fossil fuel system is not working properly in particular because supply is being too constrained. Therefore, we need to do more to boost fossil fuel supplies in order to make sure that we have got the gas, the coal, the oil that we do still very much need because they are still the foundation and the absolute basis of the world's energy system? It's a really good question. And, you know, we can all reflect in a few years on what actually ends up coming out of this. What I'll say is that I would expect, and I think we would all reasonably expect to see pushback when prices start going through the roof. And we've seen some recent announcements coming out of Russia saying, oh, actually, we're, you know, we filled up our, our local storage capacity. We'll be able to send more, you know, gas to Europe. We've seen perhaps some short-term relief. But overall, we've got, let's just focus in on the U.S. where we're sitting today. In the U.S., one in three people right now are energy insecure, meaning they pay between 6 and 10% of their 
uh, income on their utility bills, or they just don't turn on their air conditioner or heater and actually have their home be at an unsafe temperature because they can't afford that bill if they do turn it on, or they know that their house is so inefficient that they're not going to be able to actually effectively heat or cool their building. So spikes in gas prices affect so many different components. It, it affects how individuals, what they pay to heat their homes directly when they use natural gas directly, which is a large part of the population in Europe and here in the US and other parts of the world in Asia. But they also go into our power plants. So even if you're on electricity for, for your heating needs, you are going to see increasing electricity prices. And I know the EIA for the U.S. is is saying they see actual home heating bills this winter. They're saying they expect it to go up by something like 30% were the last estimates that I've seen come out of the EIA. When you've already got one in three people that are struggling, are unable to actually be secure to be able to properly heat and cool their home and pay their bills, 30% is huge. And so I don't think that anyone doesn't expect pushback. And I think in the short term, you're going to see a lot of scrambling amongst policymakers as to what can we do? What are our different options beyond the obvious ones of you know subsidizing people's energy bills, which has its own trade-offs? I mean, what are we going to do? Because these are not just market numbers we follow on the internet. These are people's bills that they can or cannot pay that directly impact their health. It's also companies and their ability to effectively do their business and, and pay their bills. So this is a, a big deal. And I would say it highlights what I said earlier about the transition being messy. And I think that it's nice to paint a picture and it might be cleaner to paint this picture if we'll just you know leapfrog into this renewable future around the world. But the reality is that we still are depending on natural gas power plants to balance out our system. We're still relying on natural gas in our industry and in our homes for heating. And it's not an easily transitioned fuel. It's something that has so many applications. It's, it's complicated. So I expect these price spikes to make things even messier. And the hope is that they don't slow down progress. But we'll see. We'll see how we're coming out of the winter and how cold this winter is. I think that will affect a lot of the public sentiment around this. Curious if y'all disagree with that or if you see it differently. Yeah, Emily, what do you think? Well, we think a lot about building systems where everyone can participate in the energy transition. It's not fair if we build the energy future and only certain people benefit from it, right? Like we need to make sure we're sharing the benefits of the energy transition in a more equitable way. So like one of our favorite asset classes that generate right now is community solar. We've done a ton of deployment this year, just hundreds and hundreds of megawatts of community solar deployment. And what's great about that is that when you build a community solar project, the local residents and communities and nonprofits and everyone in that town is eligible to like sign up for it and get up to 10 percent off their electricity bill, right? That's a way to share in the benefits of the energy transition and to spread it out. Over the last year of the pandemic, people bought a lot of cars and they bought a lot of fossil fuel cars, right? That's what they're using to get around now to transport their families to get school. So they are going to be sensitive to prices. Um, people are going to be sensitive in bills at the gas tank. They're going to be sensitive to high electricity bills. If you put in a carbon price, you have to make sure that we find a way to do it in a way that's not regressive. All of those are very important. You need to keep support up and you need to make sure the incentives we're creating do work for the mass group of people. The goal of this whole energy transition process should be to make it more convenient and easier for people. That's why we're so focused on infrastructure. Um, we have to bake it into our system. Yes, I do 100% agree with that. I think as Melissa was saying, I think this coming winter is going to be really important. Energy costs obviously already a huge issue in Europe. Energy availability, a big issue in many parts of Asia. I think it certainly has the potential to become a very big issue in this country as well, particularly if we have a cold winter here in the United States. I think it is going to be something that's going to be 
attracting a lot of attention. Certainly, even just uh, gasoline prices here clearly rising up the political agenda. You were saying, Melissa, earlier, when you see President Biden simultaneously going to Glasgow to talk about getting off fossil fuels, but also at the same time asking the OPEC plus countries to produce more oil, it's pretty clear there's some pretty significant tensions there. And I'm sure that's going to be an issue we're going to be coming back to many times. To your point, I love that quote from Jigger. Uh, Emily, as you say, it's uh, it's simple, but not easy. There are a lot of issues in the energy transition that are actually very difficult to resolve and working out how you resolve them, obviously, is a big part of the conversation we're going to be having here. So to finish up, we have this tradition, long-standing tradition in the energy gang of the free electron, just kind of quick bites of things that you've uh, noticed over the past week, maybe something a little bit quirky or offbeat. Emily, what do you got for us? Okay, for my free electron, um, we're looking at this week that order, um, maybe announced last week by Hertz Global Holdings, uh, the big rental car company about four months out of bankruptcy. They come out and they say they're going to order 100,000 Teslas after selling off a lot of their fleet in the past year. Um, It's a pretty ambitious plan to electrify the whole rental car fleet. And it's like really exciting for the whole rental car space. Single largest purchase order ever for electric vehicles that we've heard of, probably 4.2 billion for Tesla out of that. And then it's kind of a funny story because just after that, the market's all excited about it. Elon Musk comes out and he's like, well, it's not a signed contract and they have to get in line with everybody else. And there's a lot of demand for electric cars right now. And they're going to fill all the different orders in the order they get them. And it's a very exciting deal. But like, tempering the expectations a little bit. And I think that says a lot about what's going on in the energy transition right now that like we've talked about before, that it's a little bit messy. Sometimes the way our supply chains work to get the new systems that we need, managing that, the inflation costs, you know, all of that is something you have to work into the system. If you are an electric car maker, and there's just tremendous demand for electric cars, and there's not that much competition yet, you know, how are we going to fill all these orders? How are we going to reach those global climate goals? I think this just highlights all the messiness of the energy transition and all the excitement. And it's definitely, we've been waiting to see orders like that to signal the market, to see what restaurants are going to do, what hotels are going to do for charging stations. There's so much possibility and stuff like that. So that's an area we're really excited about and definitely one to keep watching. Yeah, that is funny, particularly when you think about that huge increase in uh, Tesla's market capitalization that happened when they made that announcement or when it emerged uh, that that Hertz deal was on. And uh, as is often the case, I guess, maybe particularly often with Tesla, then when you kind of dig into the details a little bit, there's a lot more complexity to it than you uh, than you would have heard from that first headline right at the beginning. So, Melissa, what do you got? So I have this article from The New York Times that I cannot get out of my head. I'm going to focus in on that one just because I can't shake it. And it's this article by Ivan Penn, um, where it focuses in on this family, the Garcia family, that have a home near Stanford University. So I'm thinking California, some rolling hills, some ocean, lots of sunshine. They spend about $30,000 putting rooftop solar on their house. So A, I'm a bit jealous of them because I can't put uh, solar on my rooftop because our HOA won't let us. Plus, we have tons of trees that keep the heat off in the summer but doesn't let us have solar. So I was reading about this system, and effectively, they spent $30,000, and they can't actually connect it to the system because the wires can't handle it in their area. There's such a high penetration of solar that the utility is saying, can't connect, sorry. And so they have a $30,000 brick on their rooftop right now. And it's just a reminder to me about how... We have so many steps 
that we need to take, especially in the power sector, to get our system ready for net zero. And so it's one thing we need people installing rooftop solar. There's definitely benefits to the system of having that distributed generation. But at the same time, we need the wires to actually be able to handle it. Um, and not just for rooftop solar, but for high penetration of electric vehicles. It's just across the board, figuring out what do we need to do for our infrastructure to have it be ready for the net zero future that we're building towards? And how do we anticipate those things? So I just, I keep, it's like five days later and I keep thinking about this article and that I just had to flag it for my free electron today. Yeah, and no, it is fascinating. And as you say, quite a, a, a troubling thought and a really interesting little anecdote just about the scale of some of the challenges there in distributed energy. Uh, so my one is also a newspaper article from the Wall Street Journal, a column by an academic called uh, Jacob Borden, warning us about the great dangers of the Yellowstone Park supervolcano, which I don't know if you've, uh, you know about this. This is quite a well-known story. Tell me more. Reading around it. Yeah. So basically, there is a huge supervolcano under Yellowstone National Park, which has uh, a history of erupting every 725,000 years or so. And it's been about 600,000 years since the last eruption. 630,000, in fact, to be precise. So question, are we heading for another mega explosion of this volcano, which, if it happened, would have hugely damaging effects? It spreads ash all over North America and, indeed, the world, devastating impact on agricultural production and so on in a very fertile part of the United States and Canada, and, indeed, big effects on the climate, aerosols of the atmosphere, global cooling, etc., so definitely something we should be concerned about. I think the question about whether you need to be really concerned about it right now, given that it may be another 100,000 years or so before it's due for an eruption. But anyway, if it happens, it will be bad. And, and the science of how regularly this thing erupts is not terribly well understood. So who knows, it might be sooner than 100,000 years. Solution being proposed by this uh, academic, Jacob Borden, in the Wall Street Journal, is we should be exploiting Yellowstone National Park for geothermal energy, tapping some of that power, letting the heat out of it, using it for zero carbon power generation. And at the same time, apparently, if you do that, you can reduce the risk of a volcanic eruption, which I think is a great idea. It's a lovely pitch to say, hey, we're saving the US and Canada from total devastation by developing geothermal power here. I'm not certain it's going to be persuasive. But I also think there's a really interesting general point here, which is actually geothermal power is something we need a lot more of. Everything we see in terms of the way the energy transition is evolving points towards the need for clean, firm power. Electricity generation that you can rely on, but that has zero carbon emissions. Geothermal potentially could play a really significant role in that. It could be expanded greatly would be really useful if it was expanded greatly. And so it's a fantastic idea to have more of it. Then the question is, in this area of outstanding beauty in the National Park, is that really something you want to be developing for power generation? And answer, maybe not. But it seems to be a very common problem across the industry and actually becoming a, a growing problem across the renewable energy industry, which is that your need for Low carbon, zero carbon energy comes into conflict with other objectives, land use, preserving nature, whatever it might be. And my gut instinct always on this is that we should be prepared to push a bit harder than we might want to ordinarily. 
we should be prepared to do some things maybe that make us uncomfortable in terms of putting new infrastructure in place just because the climate imperative is so strong the need to address it is so important I feel like we have to do everything we can, even if at times, as I say, that makes us uncomfortable. And even if we think maybe drilling in a national park is not a great thing to be doing, perhaps in this case it is justified. I don't know. I, I'm not sure I'm right about this, but that's, <sighs> but that's my gut instinct. What You're do you never going to sell me on it. You just can't. By the geothermal part, yeah, I'm all for geothermal, but it's my national parks. <laughs> like, it could just, no, I'm going to be a holdout on this one. Emily, what do you think? Are you with me or are you with Ed? I mean, I kind of agree with Melissa. We don't really need to drill in a national park. I see what you're saying, Ed. There's so many types of carbon-free energy that we really have to think about if we're going to get to the energy transition. We do have to be open-minded about different options. I think the more we learn about geothermal, and we've looked at geothermal a lot at Generate, the more we learn about it, we see that it's everywhere. There's lots of ways to make it accessible and build more geothermal options into our system. And so there might be a more convenient way to do this that works in our system with geothermal. Um, companies like Dandelion Energy and all these firms out there like trying to make geothermal more accessible to people, working on funding mechanisms to get geothermal um, more built into our energy system. So that is a great option. I don't know if we need to start in the national park to do it. I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm wrong. But I still think maybe I'm right. We can keep arguing this one uh, for many shows to come, I'm sure. <laughs> So for this week, though, that's all from the Energy Gang. Melissa, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks, Ed. It's been fun. And Emily, thank you very much as well. Thanks so much. It's been a blast being with you both. Indeed it has. And thank you all very much for listening. As I was saying at the beginning of this show, we want to be true to that fantastic tradition that the Energy Gang's built up. We want to keep bringing you all the best news and insight from the energy transition. Please let us know what you think. Give us your comments, suggestions, ideas for subjects we ought to be covering. We're on Twitter, at The Energy Gang, and I'm at Ed underscore Crooks. And we'll be back in two weeks, when, as I said, we'll be looking back at the successes and the failures of COP26 and asking the question, what's next for the energy transition? Until then, goodbye. <laughs>